The text is for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 24, verses 33 through 43. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, Luke 24, verses 33 through 43. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Father, as we look to your word now, we ask that our hearts would rely on your word, that our hearts would not rely on our circumstances, our, our emotions, or uh, all these other things, but that you would anchor us in the facts of our redemption that were accomplished for us uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, Father, I pray that you would humble us, that you would bring joy to our hearts as we consider your word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection of uh, Jesus Christ has been under attack since the moment that it began. And the reason why it's been under attack is because Jesus has always had enemies. God has always had men and women in rebellion uh, to them, af to him after the fall. And the reason why the resurrection of all things uh, that is under attack is because Christianity itself hangs upon the resurrection and hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, then all that we could say about Jesus, all that we could say about his good teaching all that we could say about his life would fall and disintegrate into nothing. Those who would like to take Jesus but deny the resurrection, what they take is a man who would, uh, has spoken a fraud. He's lied to the people. He said he was going to be crucified. He said he was going to be raised. And so... Even today, 
In Jesus' day, the, the, the first plan was what? Let's pay the soldiers to lie about the angel and to lie about what really happened. And so that lie was spread in Jesus' day that his body was stolen. <laughs> stolen by disciples that are so afraid they're hiding away. <laughs> they're afraid of the authorities. Not, they don't have any courage according to the accounts of the New Testament. And so that lie was propagated in Jesus' day. And you could go online and you can find all sorts of theories. And maybe you've heard some of these. You can read about the swoon theory. Uh, that Jesus was not really dead. That He was just almost dead. And that when they put Him in the cool tomb and and the spices they wrapped him in, all of a sudden he started to come back to life. Greg Kokel says, there is no good theory for a false truth. And so the swoon theory falls short in so many ways. The professional executioners whose only job is to kill Jesus fail. They run a sword into his side and blood and water flows, but somehow Christ would survive that. And then after being beaten almost to death before he was even put on the cross, he would somehow with no medical attention, no water and no food for three days start to come to. And although Lazarus needed to be unwrapped from his garments when he was raised from the dead, because who could get themselves unwrapped from their own burial clothing? Jesus somehow was able to come to and unwrap himself. And then after all that, he would have to have the strength to move the stone and then beat up the guards or something and get away, and then walk miles and miles to meet the two on the road to Emmaus with feet that have been pierced. And so, as we look at the swoon theory, it almost becomes laughable. And you think, well, why, why would someone try so hard to deny the resurrection of Christ? And the answer to that is, is if Jesus is raised from the dead then that means He is God and that means He is Lord and that means that He is King and He would need to be submitted to. And that's the very thing the leadership in Israel did not want. They didn't want to submit to anyone. They wanted it their way. Just as Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, have His wisdom, God's holding out on them was the satanic deception. Satan wanted the glory that only God deserves. And so people will go to any sort of explanation to deny the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection can be disproven, which 2,000 years of history has proven that it can't, then you could get rid of Christianity. And then there's the hallucination theory. This theory is, is that his disciples loved him more than they've ever loved anyone their entire life. And they couldn't stand to imagine life without him. 
And because their hearts were so broken and they so wished he was alive, they began to have hallucinations that he was alive, that he talked to them in a body, but it was merely an hallucination. The problem with this, obviously, is that hallucinations, by definition, are an individual phenomenon. The way you know it's not real and it's a hallucination is no one else experiences that or sees that. And what we have in Scripture is that Jesus appeared to groups So everyone in the group would have to have the same hallucination at the same time, even 500 people at one time. And on top of this, the disciples didn't even actually believe that He was risen from the dead after they saw the empty tomb, after the angels had talked to them, and after the women had discussed what the angels had said to them, they still didn't believe. So to try to argue that they wanted him to be alive so bad that they created this image in their own mind is ridiculous. Another point here is when Jesus did appear to his disciples, they didn't recognize him at first. If you're going to have a hallucination of Christ because you want to see him so bad, at least you're going to recognize the one you're trying to hallucinate into existence. But Mary thought Jesus was the gardener and the two on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. And so why do people cling to these silly theories? And then there's the wrong tomb theory, which we've already talked about. The problem with this is Nicodemus has a tomb, and Nicodemus knows where the tomb is. And the women watched Nicodemus, I mean, not Nicodemus, but Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus shows up with, with spices for his burial. So Nicodemus knew where the tomb was. Joseph knew where his own tomb was. And then the women sat across from the tomb and watched them lay the body of Jesus in there. And the Roman guards knew which tomb to put soldiers at. And so this theory states that the women got up that morning and they went to the wrong tomb. And when they got there, the body wasn't there, but it was the wrong tomb. Well, this one falls flat because The authorities will do anything to get rid of Christianity, to get rid of Christians, to stop this sect, as they called it, this new way. And all they would have to do is produce the body of Jesus. They would just have to go to the right tomb and say, here he is. The women went to the wrong tomb. There is no resurrection. But they never even denied the resurrection. They had to pay soldiers to lie that the tomb was empty. If he was thrown with other crucified criminals on the pile, they would just have to go to the pile and pull him out and say, here he is. And we could look at, I'm sure, many more. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ, his bodily resurrection, is the hinge on which Christianity swings. Without it, everything will fall apart. Paul knew this. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 13, here's what Paul says. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says, I'm the biggest idiot that's ever lived if Christ has not been raised. I'm preaching false things. My life is a waste. I'm getting beat up for preaching the resurrection of Christ. I would be the biggest fool if Christ has not been raised. But of course, Paul says what we all know is that he has been raised. Romans 10.9 says this. You say, what's the big deal if I believe Jesus is resurrected? Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe that God raised Jesus, his body from the grave. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.1, here's how Paul starts out his letter to the Christians in Galatia. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If he wants to tell you who he's an apostle of, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ and of God the Father, but he can't just say, and of God the Father. He says, who raised Jesus from the dead? And so... Understanding the importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is paramount for the Christian. Really, the charge of this sermon is one charge, and that is to rejoice. He has been raised. Rejoice. You have good foundation to rejoice in all times and in all circumstances. Because Christ has been raised. So let's seek to understand the importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at our text towards the end of the sermon. But I want to point out these three main facts first. And then let's, uh, the text is really straightforward. A child can understand what is there and what the purpose for Luke writing it is. But let's just think about the theology of this for a second. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we have proof that our sin has been defeated. 
that our sin has been defeated. The wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Both a spiritual death and a physical death must be conquered. Some will say, well, yeah, Jesus conquered the grave spiritually. He didn't actually come back in His real body, but then let's think of this. Sin has not really been defeated, has it? Because sin brought about the physical death of Adam and Eve and all their children and of their children and of their children and we're all here dying of physical death as we speak. The moment we begin to live, we begin to be one day closer to our physical death and sin has not been conquered if both our spiritual death is conquered and the physical death which sin brings about. If his body wasn't raised, the reality of the permanence of our physical death is sealed forever. You have no hope for your body to live if Christ has not been raised. I'll never forget one day when I was uh, sitting in one of the leather chairs at Caribou Coffee, a really kind man uh, sat across from me and he was reading a book and I couldn't help but notice the title of his book. The title of the book was called Breaking the Death Habit. Subtitle, The Science of Everlasting Life. So this guy was reading a book, How to Break the Death Habit, which evidently no one seems to be breaking. But here's a book on how to do it and how to experience everlasting life. So I couldn't help myself but ask him about the book that he was reading and what he shared with me was really strange. He was really excited that I believed in Jesus because he told me that Jesus was a, one of the best yogis there ever was. He had some of the most enlightenment that, that uh, his light was so bright that uh, certain people at whatever stage they live in, he believed in reincarnation, that you keep coming back. And, and he had been a Christian in a past life, but now he's to greater knowledge. He's seen more light, so he's thankful for where I am. He said, you're one of the brightest people in Aberdeen. And he, and he says, you'll see it in your, in your Bible. He said, Elijah, this book talks about how Elijah is the fire master in the Bible. And he experienced the spiritual... Uh, closeness of God through fire. And so it was a book on how to master your life as a human, even to the point where you could avoid dying. A, the goal was to be a yogi. A yogi is a disciple who've, re, who's reached the highest state of meditation. They've conquered Yoga. It's a mixture of all sorts of different thoughts. 
But it has to do with daily practices of meditation. And this was his plan. Because here's what he knew. He knew something. He knew that death was a problem. And so he was reading the book, How to Overcome That Problem. And this whole world knows that death is a problem. The whole world is obsessed with trying to break the curse of death. Whether it's through health and fitness plans, based on good science. Maybe it's through really rich people can inject stem cells into their body to try to make them live longer. You turn on the TV, everyone's trying to conquer death. And then there's those health plans that are based in science, which are actually can be helpful for us because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We're, we are to take care of our bodies, but we're not to take care of our bodies as though that is the hope of our life. And so we see people dealing with the death curse with science, but we also see people dealing with it with fantasy. It's fantasy everything. I want to go to a world where I don't die. And those who chase this might chase health plans that have nothing to do with science. It's truths they hope are true. It's realities that they hope will overcome their life. Or, or the death that's facing them in their future. It's a form of denial. A fantasy is a form of denial. Another form of breaking this is the people that say, you only live once, you got to live it up. I'm going to die, so I'm going to really live, which is my way of defeating death, is I'm going to live now. I'm going to live it up. Whatever a non-believer is doing, they're trying in some way to deal with the reality that death is facing them. And so, when we come to the Scripture, we see and we can have joy in seeing that the reason why death exists is because of sin and that sin was dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ in your place. And so the Christians are the one group of people on this earth that don't have to be desperately seeking how to overcome the curse of death. Because sin has been dealt with. The wages of sin is death. And if Jesus has the keys to death and Hades, and Jesus has you, then you are going to be okay. Here's all Paul said it in Colossians 2. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which uh, you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespassing, trespasses, having 
are by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul can't talk about the resurrection of Jesus without talking about the death contract that was on your head because of your sin that's now been dealt with, that's now been taken care of. Sin has been defeated, is what the resurrection of Christ shows. And secondly... He has been raised so that we can have actual proof that God accepted his death as payment for sin. Because we can say anything. Some guy can stand up and say, I'm the son of God and this is what I'm going to do and here's my power and here's why you need to bow down to me. But most people won't listen to that person. They'll say, on what authority do you say that? And it reminds me of Mark chapter 2. God is so kind to us. He doesn't just tell us what he's going to do. Well, then he does it. Then he gives us the proof that his word is true. In Mark 2, this is a familiar story you all remember, is when they lower the paralytic through the ceiling and he's coming down and Jesus has been healing the crowds. Jesus says something Amazing. In Mark 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of those dropping this guy down, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. He just said it. What? He's there for healing. And Jesus just is going to say, I forgive your sins. Well, who are sins against? Sins are against God. And Jesus just flat out says it. Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's exactly what they should be thinking, right? Who is he to say your sins are forgiven? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, let's answer that question. I can sit here and say, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. In fact, priests do this all the time. Therapists do this all the time. Because one of the curses of sin is guilt. And one of the therapist's job is to get them out of the guilt. Let's blame someone else. Let's do this. Let's do that. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to tell a paralytic that's been a paralytic since he was a child to get up and walk, right? But what does Jesus say? So that you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. Now let's just admit, you're dealing with a different guy now, aren't you? Because the proof has been the evidence that what he says is true. That he really is the one who will forgive sins. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like that. In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give His life as a ransom for many. 
He could say that. That sounds like a nice thing to do. But we know He did it. Or we know that it's accomplished and that God has accepted it as payment for sin when God raised Him from the dead. Because God doesn't confirm false teachers. God isn't going to bring miraculous uh, powers and give it to false teachers to confirm a lie. But His resurrection is like the receipt you get when you purchase something online or you make a payment that says your payment was received. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the Christian who has a sin problem and therefore a death problem can be assured that it's taken care of. And finally, Jesus was raised so that we can glorify God with our bodies. This is why God created Adam and Eve to be image bearers, to reflect His glory, to have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and to cultivate this garden as a reflection of the glory of God. And if sin kills us, our bodies permanently, then we can no longer glorify God the way God meant us to glorify Him. I think one of the moments this hit me was actually at uh, Jerry Stroh's father's burial in Eureka. I had never actually been there when they lowered the body down into the ground. That was always done after I had left the graveside. But they did it as a part of the service. And it's a sobering thing to see the body of a loved one go down into the earth knowing that it's going to be covered up again. But that plot will be a resurrection plot and not a burial plot forever. It'll forever be after that the place where if Jerry's father was a believer, and I assume that he was, his body will be raised. We're even told that unbelievers' bodies are raised for a resurrection on to death. But Jesus' resurrection seals a promise that you and I not only can glorify God with our bodies right now, here today, through the new birth and the Holy Spirit living within us and the Word of God, but for all eternity. We're actually going to be able to use real bodies like Jesus's to glorify Him with real talents and real cultivating of a real new heavens and new earth forever. We're just not in floaty, floaty spirit land forever. For when Christ returns, the bodies of those who have already passed in their spirit that is with Christ will come together. And forever they'll glorify God with their bodies, which is important as we read the New Testament. Romans 6.1 says, What are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? We, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The purpose of your salvation ultimately is to glorify God. And God's plan is that you will glorify Him for all eternity in a new body. Romans 6.13 says, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We, we take our health and we give it to Him as instruments of righteousness. Even now, even though we still have sin and we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we're to glorify Him now and we'll glorify Him for all eternity. Romans 7, 4 Paul says, likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And because we have a spiritual birth already renewed in us as believers with the Holy Spirit, we can glorify him now in our body. But when we're glorified, we'll no longer sin again. And we will glorify Him. As Paul says, we won't be found naked forever. Though our spirit, it's better for your spirit to be apart from the body and present with the Lord. That's not the best though. We're not to be found naked forever. A spirit with no body. But when Christ returns, we'll be fully clothed. We'll have a body like His Philippians 3.20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Do you believe it? Do you believe that you're going to have a body like the body we're going to look at in just a moment? 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, we, when he appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And then we don't have time for it, but go read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul lays out a bunch of glorious facts about this new body that's not a body sown in weakness, but it's a body sown in power and it's glorious. No more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. And so, because Christ is resurrected, we have the promise that we can glorify Him in our body now and we'll be able to do it for all eternity. So let's go to our text. Let's see what Luke wants us to see. Luke writes what Luke wants to write as the Holy Spirit carries him along and he writes Holy Scripture. God is so kind that He gives us proofs. So let's get ourselves back from two weeks ago, the two on the road to Emmaus. 
Jesus opens the scriptures to them, shows them how that Jesus needed to die on the cross. They invite him in for dinner. As he breaks the bread and gives thanks for their meal, they recognize him. And the two arise. Now it's nighttime. Now it's dark. And they run to the disciples. They've seen all sorts of evidence for the resurrection and they haven't believed it up to this point. But now, finally, they can't wait to tell them. And so in verse 33 we read, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed. So they come in. Have you ever had good news? You can't wait to tell someone. They don't even get to say it. Because the disciples... Peter, James, John, the rest of them, they also have good news and it's a, who, who, who gets to talk first? Well, they enter the door and they say, he's risen indeed. They can't wait to tell him. The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road. Now they get their turn and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so we might say, boy, I bet their faith is strong now. Finally, they believe. But like we talked about last time, the human heart can find out just about anywhere, right? As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. Now, they didn't think they saw a spirit because he looked like a ghost. They thought they saw a spirit because everyone had that, those doors locked because they're afraid. And as they're talking, Jesus appears and shows up. Not as a see-through man, but it's the way he entered the room that startled them and frightened them. They have no concept of a body that has flesh and bones and can all of a sudden appear. It's challenging their understanding of what a body is. And so they think they see a ghost. <clears throat> and what does Jesus say to them? He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your hearts? <laughs> it's almost like the more he shows them, the less they believe because it's almost too good to be true. You can, can, you can you wrap your mind around? You've experienced this before, right? Things that you say, did that really happen? This is too good to be true? Is <laughs> The title of the message is too good to be true? Question mark. This is the struggle, right? Could it be that true? If it is, it's so good. And so what they, we read is Jesus says to them, why do doubts rise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So they could feel his skin. They could touch his bones. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, 
have you anything here to eat? I mean, it's a weird statement. They, they disbelieve for joy. It is too good to be true. In Acts 12, remember when Jesus was imprisoned and they were all gathered praying for Peter? <laughs> Acts 12, 12, here's what we read. When, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and there were many gathered and were praying. <clears throat> and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, the servant girl came named Rhonda and answered, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, are you out of your mind? But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is an angel. They're praying for his release. And he's released. And he's at the door. And the servant girl says, he's at the door. And they say, no, it's an angel. It's too good to be true. They can't believe it. And this is what they are dealing with. They're trying to wrap their minds around the type of good news that is unlike any good news there's ever been on the face of this earth. And so he asks in his kindness, he says, you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them to show that he's not a ghost. He eats food. His body eats food. And this is the kindness of God saying, sinner, your sins can really be forgiven. You no longer need to fear death. You no longer need to fear the wrath of God. You get to be a type of person that is not absent from suffering, but in the midst of suffering has a hope that no one else has. Has a joy that no one else can explain. The resurrection is the ultimate reversal. If you can imagine a wrestler getting beat a whole match and in the last 10 seconds flips the guy over, pins him. People would say, that was an incredible wrestling match. Why? Because it was apparent defeat, but victory came. You know, you probably should never end a sermon with the Vikings illustration. <laughs> but in my lifetime, the greatest Viking play I ever saw was the miracle play. I know Babcocks were at the game. I've heard a lot of people say what it was like there. There's almost zero chance. There's 10 seconds left. There's no chance. Vikings fans are used to this. I mean, we're not even that bummed because we know it's going to happen. We, we know it's going to come. And then a reversal. And then the crowd stays for an hour and people that don't know each other are hugging each other and talking to each other and no one wants to leave. And if the Vikings had just won the game by 20 points, everyone would have been happy and they would have cleared out. But they stayed. They didn't want to leave because they're built for the best news in the world. When apparent defeat strikes and there's no hope, what if there's ultimate hope 
that can answer every fear? What if there's ultimate joy that can be eternal joy? What if every ounce of fear of death can be reversed to, no, I'm going to live. What if every body ache is like a springboard to worship God because it's a reminder that you're not going to live in that body forever? What if every time you sin, every time this sin clings so closely and you're tempted to just give up and be in despair, you say, I, I can be forgiven for this. I can have power to fight this and one day I won't sin again. Well, it's true. It is true. Let me end with Paul in Philippians 3. How did this marinate with his life? Here's what he says. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, that I may share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. He says, bring on the suffering. Bring on the death if it'll bring me, make me more like Christ. Bring about the resurrection of this body. Though you may kill me now, yet I will live. That's the hope we have. And we're called as Christians to walk by what? Faith. And it's not faith like the death curse book, breaking the death habit. It's not wishful thinking. It's faith in the Word of God, the God who does not lie and whose prophecies all come true. But we're called Christians to live as though Jesus Christ is resurrected because He has been. And that's hard. And that's why we need to gather together, listen to preaching together, encourage one another, pray for each other because our hearts fill with doubt. Do they not? Father, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that Jesus' body that has bones in it and flesh on it is in heaven right now at your right hand and one day will come to this earth. We know Acts 1 tells us exactly how Jesus ascended up into heaven. He'll come in the same manner, the angels said, meaning bodily not merely spiritually. And Father, we thank You for this. And we ask that we would glorify You in our bodies. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.